we as adults don't spend too long in observation. We tend to want to jump straight into interpreting what we think. And it's actually quite useful for us to take a step back and just dwell in observation for a little bit, because those details that we notice will help fuel our curiosity. Hey, thanks for joining us today. This is Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. I talk a lot about curiosity practices in this show, the tips and techniques we use to elevate curiosity in our lives. Here's a curiosity practice I use for the show. When I'm working on a particular episode, I immerse myself in the content. I read everything I can get my hands on by or about my guest. I listen to podcasts. I dig and surf and take endless notes. And then I walk away. Literally, I shut the laptop and walk out the door so that all that stuff can marinate, percolate, synthesize in my overfilled head. I wait to see what floats to the surface. And so it was this week as I read and reread resources on the Thinking Museum website and listened to art engagement expert Claire Bounds' lovely podcast all about what she calls slow looking and visible thinking. Out the door I went into the damp and cold day on my way to the Tidal Basin in Washington, D.C., But to get there, I have to walk across the Arlington Memorial Bridge that crosses the Potomac River. I've walked over that bridge dozens of times. But this time, I had Claire in my head, and I found myself staring at the endless parade of balusters in the railing as I crossed. It dawned on me I was essentially slow-looking, the art of learning through extended observation in motion, the same baluster over and over, but different. Despite the uniformity of the line, I noticed the variety, the many shapes of gray-brown granite on display, the play of light and shadow on the flat and rounded surfaces, even in the flat light, the stains on some but not others, the, the grout in the railing seemed to correlate with chalky streaks on the uprights, When I got to the D.C. side, I continued on to the Tidal Basin. By then, it was starting to snow, so I made my loop quickly, stopping long enough only to sketch the MLK Memorial, because how can you resist? And then I headed home. On the way back across the river, I watched the balusters go by again, noticing they were a different color on the eastern side, which had been invisible to me before. Was that accumulated grime? Was the light really that different? Were the snow flurries dampening the stone enough to change its color? I pulled off my glove to test the surface. Yep, definitely damp. Put my glove back on and kept going. More questions flooded in. Was it really granite? Where was the stone quarried? Had the oldest stones been there since the bridge was built more than 90 years ago? What do you call those things anyway? And so it went for a third of a mile I'd spent a total of almost 15 minutes across the river and back, just staring at roadside railings. Slow looking, indeed. I went home and found my way to the word baluster 
and into today's show. Claire Bone is founder and principal of Thinking Museum. She teaches people techniques to help them engage more with art. Her website, podcast, and weekly newsletter, which I now eagerly read, and other resources are like a who's who or a what's what of curiosity practices for art and anything else we might like to look at. It was her free guide, How to Look at Art Slowly, that first hooked me. I'm delighted to have her join me from the Netherlands today. So welcome, Claire. Thanks, Lynn, for that wonderful introduction. It was beautiful. It was so nice to hear about your slow looking experience as well. (laughs) Well, I told you before we started recording, you have absolutely been in my head for the last couple of weeks. So tell me more about Thinking Museum and how you actually spend your days, because it seems like a pretty fabulous way to lead a life, I have to say. So my day job is, well, now it is teaching people techniques to help them connect with art. So I work predominantly with museum educators, art educators, uh, museum docents, teachers, online and in person. So either I get to go into amazing museums and train teams there, or I get to work with people online from anywhere in the world. And I teach them a variety of techniques that they can use with audiences. So when they're with visitors in the museum, to help their audiences engage more with what they're looking at. So that could be art or objects. Um, I work in all sorts of museums. It doesn't have to be art museums. And these techniques, yeah, helping people to slow down, to look closely, and using structures like thinking routines to help structure the discussion a little bit. It is a fantastic job. I have (laughs) kind of created this position for myself over the last 10 years. Well done. 10 years now. (laughs) And I do really love it. I mean, I absolutely love my job. And I think that is really what fuels this, this passion for my work. That passion is is evident, I think. You can really feel the heart in the work. So that's very fun. You know, I make myself a student of my guests, and I discovered actually we have sort of some fun intersections. And I thought, oh, it suddenly made sense. You've actually taken training in the question formulation technique, which is a I topic I have had more than one show around and that I refer to all the time. And I thought, oh, no wonder some of this is so resonant. And then... Your LinkedIn profile led me to the fact that the National Gallery and the Smithsonian offers a course in teaching critical thinking through art, which I have to tell you, I just emailed my mom and said, I think we should take this together because it looked like such fun. It's a great course. Yeah. Yeah. So your work is grounded in what you call these thinking routines. Tell me, tell me more. Yes. So a long time ago, probably about more than 12 years ago now, I was working in a museum in Amsterdam. As you can hear, I'm originally from the UK, but I live in in the Netherlands. And I was working on a project that was uh, trying to get more out of museum visits mm. for teachers and their students. And I did a series of focus groups with students and teachers just finding what they wanted from museum visits and what they were actually currently getting. And I found that there was a real gap between what they what they wanted and what they received. And during one of these focus groups, I remember it like it was yesterday, one of the teachers mentioned the words visible thinking. And she said, oh, Claire, I really think you should look into it. I think it has great application, great potential for application within the museum world. And I'd never heard of it. Yeah. 
uh, I did feel a slight light bulb go off, you know, when you have one of those moments and you think, oh, this sounds really interesting. Uh, My curiosity was piqued (laughs) and I decided to do a bit of research. And what I found really opened up um, a whole new world to me. The fact that there were these structures out there called thinking routines, which are very loose, flexible structures that you can use to help guide your thinking. And I wondered, um, they'd been in use in schools for a number of years by this time, probably about 10 years. Uh, They were invented by Harvard's Project Zero. And I wondered, could I take these into the museum and Mm -hmm. use them there? So that started this exploration, really. Um, And that was back in 2011. I created this new program and I created a methodology to go along with it. So the kind of the results of this have been a new approach to engaging uh, with artworks and with objects and really just prolonging this interest in uh, fascination in what makes a great guided tour, what makes a great guided art experience and how do we get people to engage with art. So it's a combination of all those factors. So was that methodology that you developed, the visible thinking method? Yeah, so I took elements from Visible Thinking, which Uh is a research project from Harvard's Project Zero, and combined them with a few other techniques and skills and approaches. So there are practices such as uh, working on your questioning skills. You Mm -hmm. mentioned the question Mm -hmm. formulation technique. So uh, there's a lot of work we do on developing good questions, being a good facilitator, because you need to be able to facilitate the art experience when you're with people, encouraging slow looking, uh, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get to talk about as well. These are some of the practices that combine with the thinking routines to make it work in a museum environment. Right. So which came first, visible thinking or slow looking? Uh, well, that's that's a very good question, actually. <laughs> I was trying to think back the other day uh, to when I first heard the words slow looking. And it was definitely around the beginning of my research into visible thinking. <sighs> slow looking has been around for longer, although whether it was known by that those uh, terms yeah, yeah. back yeah. in the day, I'm not sure. So if you look back to, you know, some of the books that we've had, you know, on the slow movement, there's got Slow Art Day, which was also started around 2010. All of these happened around the same time. Visible thinking actually is from around 2000. So it's debatable which came first. <laughs> well, chicken and egg, right? They probably, yeah. there was some evolution, <laughs> co-evolution. So let's start then with visible thinking. Tell us about visible thinking, because I have to say, I didn't know this language, but the minute I heard the words, I thought, oh. (laughs) Yeah, so the, the idea behind visible thinking is that the majority of what we think stays in our head. Uh, We have all these thoughts constantly running through our heads on a daily, day-to-day basis. And the idea behind visible thinking is that there are some approaches, some techniques that you can use to make your thinking more visible. And in doing so, you make it more visible to yourself, but also to others around you. So by engaging in visible thinking, you are encouraging discussion with others so other people can hear your thinking. You're asking lots of questions. which we know is a great curiosity practice, (laughs) but also you're listening very intently as well. Mm -hmm. So you're listening to what other people have to say. 
So the idea of using visible thinking in a classroom is a wonderful idea, but it also works incredibly well taking some of these practices such as thinking routines into a museum environment where we want to create these discussions and have people tell us their thoughts. And at some level, we do that almost instinctively, right? I mean, we go to a museum and we we want to talk to the people with whom we are visiting or even random strangers who happen to be nearby. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by Claire Bowne, a teacher, trainer, and coach who helps people engage with art more and more effectively. What you're doing is taking that instinct and really giving it wings, right? Giving it some substance and some ways of of being more involved than just, oh, that's cool. Yeah, so giving sort of a flexible framework from which you can look at something. So if if I was to say to you, go and spend 10 minutes with an artwork, it's actually quite a difficult thing to do. One minute seems a long time when you're on your own with an artwork. So having these flexible structures such as thinking routines just gives you a few questions you can ask yourself or if you're with someone that you can ask other people as well. So you can think about what you're looking at, what you see, what you think it might be and what you're wondering about to use See, Think, Wonder as an example. So I think, yeah, these, these structures really help us to look, but also they help us to look for longer. Because if you go for any of the any of the research into how long people actually look at artworks and objects in the museum, yeah, it's yeah. not very long at all. Yeah. It can be anything from two to thirty seconds. Yeah. 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 No, I mean guilty as charged. I realized when I when I sort of did an audit of my own uh, museum behavior, I realized, oh, there's a lot of stuff I just I, I sort of take in, but don't process, or I have an initial reaction, but I don't wait to for it to percolate or for me to have a secondary or tertiary reaction. But you sped past something I want to bring us back to about see, think, wonder. That's one of these practices. So spell that one out. And are there other specific practices that fall into this that you can share? Yeah, so see, think, wonder is probably it's probably the most common thinking routine. It's the one that I think most people who've heard of thinking routines will get to know at some point. It's quite often the first thinking routine that people get to know because it's so easy to use and you can use it anywhere. So even though I'm going to share this with you today and you might think, oh, I could use this in a museum, you could actually use it when you're out and about on a walk. Walking across a bridge, for instance. Exactly. (laughs) Or if you're looking at something at home, maybe you've got some artwork in your house and you think, I've looked at that every day for 20 years. Maybe it's time to have another look and see if I can find anything new about it. So the questions in See, Think, Wonder uh, gently guide this kind of exploration of an artwork or an object, whatever you like. The first question is, what do you see? So in this case, we will be looking for everything that we notice. So trying to build up a real picture of what we're looking at. And the see part is incredibly important. We as adults don't spend too long in observation. We tend to want to jump 
straight into interpreting what we think. And it's actually quite useful for us to take a step back and just dwell in observation for a little bit, because those details that we notice will help fuel our curiosity. They'll help make us think about what we might be thinking about this artwork. So after you've spent some time observing and describing, you probably want to then move on to, well, what do we think is going on? If it's an artwork, you know, what do you think the story is here? Or maybe if it's an object, you know, how do we think it was made? So all those sorts of thinking questions start to come up and just let them run through your head and think of some possible answers. And if you want to bring in a member of your family or someone you're with, it's great to share this exploration as well, because the more people you share it with, the more ideas that you'll get. You'll sort of bounce ideas off each other. And the last part of the thinking routine is the wondering part. So this is this is space for our questions. And this is really helpful for us as uh, museum educators because we get to know what people are wondering about and we can share our knowledge if we have any, if we can answer their question and really sort of, you know, use that to sort of satiate their curiosity. The last question is, what are you wondering about? So any questions you might have? And these perhaps don't always need to be answered. They might just be questions that you leave there. But it's that simple. It's see, think, and wonder. And the joy of thinking routines is that they're so easy to remember. That's something that you can take away and you can use anywhere as well. Yeah, yeah. No, that was one of the things that really jumped out at me. I mean, I mentioned the How to Look at Art Slowly guide, but your materials are full of these little nuggets that really you can just put in your pocket and take with you anywhere. And I love that because I think that that's just, you know, it is something that you can use. You know, I was like, oh, oh, I heard this thing. I should do this when I'm at a museum. Nah, but you can do it walking across a bridge. You can do it standing in the kitchen and having a little, whether it's a mnemonic or a little frame is a great device. So, so a lot of what that is, is slow looking, right? Yeah. Which seems to me to be tied in the language of psychology and other things, they talk about the transformative power of attention, right? That anything becomes interesting if you look at it long enough. I participated in a group where you led us through contemplating a little object from our immediate surroundings. You know, at first you feel a little self-conscious of this about this slow looking, and then that falls away. And suddenly you, like, I've been looking at this thing for 40 years, and now all of a sudden I notice something new about it. Yeah, so I think looking at something slowly and carefully is really rewarding. It's, Mm -hmm. as you say, it's a beneficial process. The more we look, the more we see. And the more interesting things become. So, for example, if we were looking at something that perhaps we didn't understand, so this works very well with, you know, perhaps with very modern artworks or abstract artworks, spending some time with it, maybe you don't get you don't change your opinion about it maybe you still don't get it after a while but you may have more of a connection to it you may have some more questions you may even remember that experience so the act of kind of slowing it down really just helps you to connect with things and the reason i love slow looking so much is because i think it 
brings into museums a bit more inclusivity, it's particularly with art museums. There's, there is that feeling sometimes in some museums as perhaps this is not a place for me. I don't know anything about art. I mean, I've, I've led programs where people have said these things to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And some of these practices, they are really just asking you to look and spend some time with an artwork and to make some personal discoveries. You don't need to know anything about art history to be able to do that. And that's one of the joys, I think, of really working in this way. Yeah, you've, you've said that you work with museums other than art museums. And I'm forgetting now exactly where I saw it in your materials, but you had some things that, that looked at taking an object and looking at its parts, thinking about its purpose, and then thinking about its complexities. And I thought, this is actually a really, really important part of your work, because I think we're often intimidated by complexity. We often turn away from complexity. We're scared by complexity. And this invitation to observe complexity, to appreciate complexity, to think about complexity seemed really special and important in what you were doing. I think that thinking routine, it's, it's called parts, purposes, complexity, which is very handy. Yep. <laughs> it's a really good example of how thinking routines scaffold the process for people. So if I asked you to look at an object and think about its complexities straight away, it, it would almost be too big of a question to ask. You wouldn't mm-hmm. perhaps know where to start or how to start unpacking those complexities. So the the simple act of just spending some time looking at the various parts and then thinking about what the purposes may be of those parts really helps to unlock some of the complexities. By the time you get to that third stage, it doesn't seem so much of a leap to be able to answer that question. You've already got some ideas running through your head. And also, if you've combined this thinking routine, works wonderfully with drawing. So if you spend some time sketching whatever you're looking at Mm, uh and then labeling the parts, it will even bring more ideas into the process as well. So it's, yeah, it's a really good example of how thinking routines just offer that sort of flexible scaffold for your thinking. Yeah. I want to really quickly ask you, it's sort of a current affairs question. There's a university known to me that has decided to eliminate its arts and humanities curriculum, focusing instead, I assume, on sort of more career-focused coursework. And I wonder if you might offer some thoughts on that and and sort of why art and looking at art are important. Yeah, I I must have read a similar article. I think this is happening all over the world, actually, that um, arts degrees, uh, English degrees and arts degrees are disappearing. I think one of the things my work has taught me over the years is that you can learn so much thinking about the benefits that it has for really slowing down and looking at things. Uh, There are educational benefits we've already discussed, but also there's well-being benefits, Um, you know, combining looking at art with meditation or mindfulness or these contemplative practices. There's benefits for our mental health, but also just enriching our lives. And thinking about 
a world without people who were engaging with the arts, people who weren't creating art, would be a very black and white, maybe a grey place without the colour that we get from art. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's a shame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Before I let you go, I have my big jar of wannabe analogies. I don't know parts, purpose, complexities. I don't know how this fits into a thinking routine. But so I have a literal jar. It has slips of paper. I'm going to take out one for you, one for me, one for the audience. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips. Okay. Yours is soup. How is curiosity like soup? <laughs> Mine is shooting hoops. And we have one for the audience. So do you want to go first or you want me to go? I think I'm going to let you go first. I think I'm going to have to think about this. <laughs> okay. So shooting hoops. How is curiosity like shooting basketball hoops? Um, hmm. Well, I uh, I think sometimes we're curious about things and we take we sort of take shots at guessing what it is. And sometimes that guess is correct and maybe it goes through the basket, so to speak. And sometimes not, but it almost doesn't matter because each shot teaches us something. We get better at making the shot, at sort of thinking about what's the right question, what's the right angle to come at this. So I, I, that's how I'll say curiosity is like shooting hoops. So how is curiosity like soup? I like your answer. I thought <laughs> it was uh, really interesting. So um, I'm thinking the first thing that came to mind were the Campbell soup tins. Uh-huh. So I'm thinking about perhaps some influence that Warhol had when he was just looking at everyday objects and he was thinking, oh, how can I represent these everyday objects in a way that will engage people, that will get them to think about art, will get them to think about life. So maybe that soup, thinking about soup in terms of curiosity, we could think about it in terms of how Warhol looked at the Campbell's soup can and oh, how wonderful. he turned an everyday object into something that was revered, looked at millions and millions of times around around the world. So, yeah, maybe that's the the angle that we should be thinking about. <laughs> I love your it. Your humble soup can can suddenly be <laughs> a wonderful piece of art. I love it. I love it. That's just great. And I so didn't see that coming. I just this is what I love about these. And audience. Me neither. <laughs> yours <laughs> Yours is sidewalk. How is curiosity like a sidewalk? Let me know. Social media, hashtag analogy. Well, Claire, thank you so much for this. And thank you, really, for the ways that your guidance has enriched my days. It's really been delightful. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me on. It's been a pleasure to talk about some of these things with you. Um, we could have talked for hours about this subject. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. Find this and all my previous episodes on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on social media at Choose to be Curious. Don't forget to send us your sidewalk analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Claire Bown. You can find links to Thinking Museum, including that wonderful guide, How to Look at Art Slowly, on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Purple Light by Marble Run via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, 
slow down, look more closely, choose to be curious. <laughs>